Chapter 22, Part 1 of Two Years in Oregon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Kumanov. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter 22, Part 1. Having said so much about the country, something needs to be said about the towns. All persons reaching Oregon, save those few who choose to face the three nights and two days of staging that divide Redding, the northern terminus of the California and Oregon Railroad, from Roseburg, the southern terminus of the Oregon and California Railroad, enter Oregon by ship from San Francisco. And here, in passing, a word of praise for the really beautiful and commodious steamers which have now replaced the Ajax and the other monsters which disgraced the traffic they were furnished for, as well as their owners. No better boats ply on any waters than the state of California, the Columbia, and the Oregon. The first two are new ships, with electric lights and all other appliances to match. All are safe and speedy. The state of California belongs to the Pacific Coast Steamship Company, the others to the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company. The approach to Oregon is forbidding and stern. There is nothing attractive in the sandy coast, in the muddy water, in the broken but not romantic scenery, where the water is encroaching on the land and shifting its position and attack from time to time. Here and there along the edge are strewed or stand in various attitudes of death the skeletons of the pine trees, which look like the relics of battle, the perishing remains of the beaten defenders of the coast. And, once over the bar, that terror to sea-worn travelers, the approach to Astoria can hardly be called beautiful. But the city of Astoria itself has claims to beauty of position. It lies within the course of the Columbia, though here the estuary is so wide as to give the idea of a lake. Jutting out into the bay above the town rises a little promontory crowned with firs, and between the eye rests on the unfamiliar outlines of a large cannery, the buildings of gray wood based on piles sunk into the mud of the bay, and the long shingled roofs catching the rays of the departing sun. The city consists of a mass of wooden structures low down by the water's edge, wharves and docks and repairing yards in front, and a long line of stores and saloons and business houses behind, broken by the more imposing custom-house, post-office, and churches. On the slopes of the high hills, rising from near the water's edge, are the scattered white houses of the inhabitants, while the skyline of the hills is broken through by the cutting by which many tons of stone and sand are being piled into the bay. The city proper mainly stands on piles, the water gurgling and lapping round the barnacles, which cluster thick, the enterprise of the people is fast filling in underneath from the hills behind. There are large and substantial docks of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, and others adjoining, where are generally lying two or three large ships or barks going out or returning from their long and weary voyage. The atmosphere of the place in the salmon season is fishy, huge stacks of boxed salmon filling the wharves. The principal street is fringed with saloons, mainly looking for custom to the fishermen and seamen. 
There is a large lumber mill, which makes the air resonant with the shriek of the great saws, and a boot and shoe factory has been recently established. Other industries exist, but it is as a seaport that Astoria justifies its existence and the foresight of its founders. Clatsop County has 7,200 inhabitants, of which, I suppose, Astoria claims a third. There is an air of business and life about the place, and there will be, so far as I can see, even though means should be found of ending the present practice of all large ships going to sea from Portland being towed to Astoria, and followed by scows and barges there to complete their loading for their outward voyage. A similar necessity exists for incoming ships to stay at Astoria, to discharge a large portion of their cargo, before facing the shallows and mudbanks of the Willamette on the way to Portland as their port of discharge. The voyage up the Columbia for a hundred miles, and up the Willamette for twelve to Portland, has many charms. First, the grand stream of the mighty Columbia, telling in its size and volume of the three thousand miles some of its waters have come from their far-off sources among distant mountains. Then the banks, rising generally sheer from the water's edge, crowned with rich and varied vegetation, and here and there the rugged rocks breaking through to give clearness and strength to outline, and then on either side the more distant hills, clothed with a dark fir timber to their summits, and behind the mountains proper, with Mount Hood and Mount St. Helens showing their snowy heads. Here and there, in a niche or angle under the bank, lie huddled close the buildings of a cannery, the blue smoke rising from the central chimney, and the white boats tied to the piling, which juts out into the deep water of the river. You are hardly conscious of leaving the Columbia for the Willamette. It looks as if it were an island in midstream, behind and to the south of which you are about to pass, but soon you find that the supposed island is the opposite bank of the Willamette, and passing beacons and marks, set to define the channel with the accuracy that is absolutely needed, since a shear to the east or west of only a yard or two would leave you fast in a mud bank for hours. You come in sight of Portland. I ought to have noticed that here and there, along the banks coming up, almost on the river's level and exposed to inundation at each high water, you pass dairy farms, consisting of a shanty or tumble-down house, and a few anchors of rank and muddy pasture, where ague seems to sit brooding on the branches of the trees, whose trunks and limbs yet bear the traces of last season's flood. But now for the juvenile but audacious Portland, who describes herself as the commercial metropolis of the Northwest. One considerable suburb, called East Portland, stands on the east bank of the Willamette, but the main part of the town is on the west bank, and now nearly fills all the level land between the river and the hills behind, which seem to be pushing at and resenting the intrusion of the streets along their sides. Extensions are taking place along the northern end, where a considerable stretch of low-lying land is yet available along the banks of the river, and also, to some extent, at the farther or southern end of the city. The building westward is mounting the hillsides, already dotted with the somewhat pretentious wooden houses of the more prosperous townspeople. To one who has seen real cities, it is but a little place, 
but some of its twenty-one or twenty-two thousand inhabitants raise claims to greatness and even supremacy that makes it difficult to suppress a smile. In thirty-five years, the place has grown from a collection of log huts, set down as if by chance, to its present dimensions, and, no doubt, could go on growing as fast as Oregon developed, could the same conditions last. The city consists of near a dozen streets, running parallel with the Willamette, and about twenty-three at right angles. Front Street and First Street contain some brick buildings, remarkable for so very young a place. The former backs on the Willamette, and on it front the warehouses and wharves, against the backs of which the ships are moored. The latter contains nearly all the city's stores and shops of any consequence. The United States District and Circuit Courts sit at Portland. The former is, and has been for several years, presided over by the Honorable Matthew P. Detty. This gentleman's name will be long associated with the jurisprudence of Oregon, having been one of the original compilers of the Code, and reporter of the decisions of the Supreme Court of the State, until, promoted to the bench of the United States Court, he has taken a high place as a conscientious and able judge. To him, also, Portland mainly owes that which I consider the chief ornament and pride of the city, rather than the ambitious but faulty structures in wood, stone, and iron on which most of the citizens glorify themselves. I mean the public library. This institution has its headquarters in spacious rooms over Messrs. Ladd and Tilton's bank. The shelves are filled with upwards of 10,000 well-selected books, and the process of addition is going on under the same careful oversight. Here, every evening are groups of readers, and it must be a source of constant satisfaction to the judge to have been the means of organizing and continuing the successful working of an institution which is affecting silent but untold good. Portland is also the residence of Bishop Morris, of the Episcopal Church. He has resided there for twelve years past, and to him the city is indebted for the St. Vincent's Hospital, where accidents are treated at all times, and which is open for receiving besides a certain number of sick persons. The bishop has also founded and kept going the Bishop Scott Grammar School. This is a high school for boys. Last year it had fifty-nine pupils and five teachers, and a sound and solid education is there given. St. Helen's Hall, the best girls' school in the state, was also founded by him. There were here one hundred and sixty pupils and twelve teachers last year. Other churches exert themselves to occupy and hold prominent positions in the city, notably the Roman Catholics, whose archbishop, Seegers, resides in Portland, and who have erected a large red-brick cathedral. It is as yet unfinished, but a further effort by the Roman Catholics in the diocese is about to be made to complete and furnish it. There is a fair theater in the city. It is occupied now and again by a traveling troupe from San Francisco, generally consisting of a star, and his or her supports of a more or less wooden consistency. The building of the Mechanics' Fair, which is used for balls and concerts, one or two Masonic and Society's halls, the rooms of the several fire companies, and those of the Young Men's Christian Association complete the list. There are a good many expensive stores of all kinds, and all seem prosperous. 
The Chinese quarter is, of course, not so large and picturesque as in San Francisco, but it is equally well-marked. A complete range of Chinese stores, with doctor's shops and theater, the usual lanterns hung out over the doors, and the common display of curious edibles. There are several substantial Chinese firms and business houses. One of their chief sources of revenue is the bringing over and hiring out the large numbers of Chinese laborers required for the railway works now in progress. The census disclosed 1,900 Chinamen as residents of Multnomah County. I suppose 1,800 of them were found in Portland. Four banks do a large general business, and there is also a savings bank. A mortgage company, having its headquarters in Scotland, at Dundee, takes up cheap money in Scotland and lends it out to great advantage in Oregon, at the rates prevalent here, with results satisfactory to its manager, Mr. William Reed, as well as to its stockholders. There are two ironworks, a large sash and door factory, a brewery, and a twine and rope factory, but beyond these, scarcely any manufacturing industry. The prosperity of the city, which has been very great during the last few years, is solely attributable to its character of Tollgate. Situated at the extreme northern boundary of the state, in a position which was not unsuitable when Oregon and Washington Territory were bound together, it is perfectly anomalous to suppose that the capital city of Oregon should have been there placed by deliberate intention. As matters now stand, it is the only port in Oregon, save Astoria, to which the large grain ships can come, and at which the deep-draft ocean-going steamers can take in and discharge their cargoes. And, very naturally, its businessmen seek to perpetuate that state of affairs, regardless of the growing interest of the great country which now pays tribute to their little town. It is not easy to forget how more than one of its leading citizens— when applied to to add their signatures to a petition to Congress in aid of the removal of the reef partially obstructing Yaquina Bay, replied, Every dollar you get is so much taken directly from our pockets. A further adventitious help that Portland got was by being made the headquarters of the Oregon Steam Navigation Company, which brought to its wharves the produce of the Columbia River traffic, as well as that of the Willamette. It might be natural to bring to, and to leave at Portland wharves, the wheat of western Oregon, but there seems little sense in bringing grain down the Columbia, and then up the Willamette, to be deposited in Portland, thence to be transferred partly in ships, partly in barges and river steamers, to Astoria, where alone the loading of the ships could be completed. The present style of the Portland and Astoria newspapers is to make very light of the Columbia Bar— in fact, they boldly state that to hardly any port is so good an approach vouchsafed as to Portland. They instance London and Philadelphia, Glasgow and New Orleans, as parallel instances in position, and the Oregonian is never weary of singing the praises of their Tom Tiddler's ground of a city. But it has not always been so with them. The historian stated, on the 30th of January, 1880, that there were thirty vessels off the bar, unable to enter. The same paper, on the 23rd of March, 1880, published this item of news. Pilots on the bar all agree that, unless some measures are adopted for permanent improvement of the channel, 
it will not longer be considered safe for vessels to enter or cross out with more than 18 feet draft of water. The historian, in the same issue, also informed us that Captain Flavel has been making personal inspections of bar soundings, and is himself fully satisfied that it is only a question of very brief time, so rapid and broadcast is the shoaling process, when it will be impossible for deep vessels to cross. The North Channel, along Sand Island from the head, is filling up as fast as does the South Channel. While the Oregonian told us as recently as December, 1880, that the gatherer, with railroad iron for the Northern Pacific Railroad Company, was compelled to lighter four times between Baker's Bay and Kalama, at heavy expense. The Shandos, sailing from this port within the past two weeks, lightered 1,300 tons. The A.M. Simpson lightered 1,100 tons. And the last departure, the Edwin Reed, getting off on a winter rain flood, scraped over the shoals with all but 280 tons of her load, the lightest lighterage of a wooden vessel for many months. The report has gone forth that to reach Portland, a ship must be dragged up a hundred miles or more of river over four bad bars, and at the shipping season, lighterage at enormous cost is necessary. Naturally enough, we now have no large ships. End of chapter 22, part 1 Recorded by Laura Kumanov, San Francisco, January 30th, 2021